0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported.
1: Community Radio from South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Noelle Herhusky Schneider.
3: And I'm Wilder Mouton. This is WFHB Local News for Wednesday, October 27th, 2021.
2: Later in the program, we hear a selection from a recent interchange with guest Devarian Baldwin, a professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities are Plundering Our Cities. More in today's feature report.
3: Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware your weekly consumer watchdog segment, hosted and produced by Richard Fish. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. But first, your environmental news brief.
4: WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, October 27th. I'm Nathaniel Winesapfel. Recently, multiple Bloomington restaurants and stores have begun to transition away from grown and mass produce to crops from local farms. This transition has been due to the desire of restaurant owners to support local farmers and use more sustainable and higher quality products. While this may increase the price of foods at some restaurants, It does come with a set of higher quality and standards. This farmer to restaurant relationship has been helpful in allowing both sections of the economy to rebound from the pandemic lows of the last year. Google has announced that their company will begin to crack down on digital advertising that promotes climate change denial or other falsified climate change information. This will be done by limiting the amount of potential revenue that creators can make from such content. Google will use both automated tools and manual human reviewers to limit posts that include this harmful information. The company is taking climate change very seriously, including with a new push to encourage their users to reduce their carbon footprints and lower emissions. This announcement coincides with Google's crackdown on other misinformation, such as the spreading of conspiracy theories about COVID-19 vaccines. As Bloomington enters the start of fall, It is important to prepare for the colder weather that will be here soon. Experts recommend that residents check and possibly clean their gutters, as clogged water that freezes can cause damage to your house. Similarly, now is the best time to fix any cracks on your driveway, which could potentially result in giant potholes. Gardeners advise that now is also a good time to fertilize your lawns, which helps prep the ground to grow green grass once the winter is over for next year's spring and summer months. That's all for Environmental News Brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple.
2: On October 22nd at the Bloomington COVID-19 press conference, Board of Health Director Penny Cottle shared information regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. She said that the annual flu vaccine is going well, and that there is a high demand for booster shots.
5: Currently, we have just under 61% of our eligible population that is fully vaccinated. And we have a high demand right now for vaccine, but that is really being driven by booster doses. So those booster doses are important. We want to encourage people to get them, but I will tell you that our first priority is to get those who have not been fully vaccinated fully vaccinated. So that's our top priority, but nobody is going to be turned away from getting their vaccine if they are eligible for it.
2: Goddell also reported that there will be more guidance and direction regarding the vaccine for individuals aged 5 through 11 soon after committee meetings on November 2nd and 3rd. She said that the current emergency order has been extended until next month due to the continued rate of community spread.
5: Our current status of Monroe County does remain in yellow advisory. We have 111 cases per 100,000 people this week. And that is a a high level of community transmission. We talk about that every week. Our positivity rate was 4.46%. So with that, the Board of Health met last night to review the data and look at our regulation that our current regulations set to expire on the 31st, or when we met our our goal of less than 50 cases per 100,000 and we're in a blue advisory. So we're not gonna meet that goal yet. Um, So the board reviewed the information, they heard uh, public comment, and they did decide to move forward because we still have substantially or high community spread. So we will be t- moving that forward. The Board of Commissioners will have to approve that recommendation to extend the current health regulation.
2: IU Health Director of Communications and Outreach, Shauna Gerges, said that the hospital is seeing a downward trend in individuals' COVID-19 in the last few weeks. She also shared the New York Times published data on COVID-19 in Indiana.
6: Another recent study compiled data from the CDC the US Department of Health and Human Services and the US Census Bureau, which found that Indiana had the 11th highest overall death rate in the country. In the same study, Indiana was 45th in vaccination rates, the sixth worst vaccinations in our country. The state is also 41st in total positive cases. The information on these studies is placed in the chat so you can review the data and these important statistics. We can do better at protecting and each other and demonstrating how we care for our fellow neighbors in our community. We know the vaccine works. We know the vaccine is safe and we know that it can save lives. If you have questions about the vaccine or like to talk to someone about scheduling your vaccination, please reach out to our community health team at 812-353-3244. Again, that's 812 812- 353-3244. You can also reach out to the Monroe County Health Department who've heard from today, and most importantly, your primary health care provider.
2: The next COVID-19 meeting will be held on October 29th.
3: At the Ellotsville Town Council meeting on October 25th, Envision Ellotsville committee member Dan Rary gave an Envision Ellotsville update. He asked residents to keep filling out the Envision Ellotsville survey and reported that IU students will be consulting with the town to improve waterway issues downtown. He said it is mutually beneficial. The students get experience and the town receives free consulting. One other thing I would like to um, report is that we've got a group of IU students from O'Neill Spia School um, working on a project uh, in the downtown area and specifically where Robson uh, Robinson block plant used to be. And if they haven't already, they're going to be uh, contacting some stakeholders and contacting, um, I'm sure Mike Farmer and Kevin Talati and, and uh, some other folks. Um, timing seems right for this. Uh, they're, this is a school project, and um, they're gonna give us ideas of what other towns have done with similar, similar waterway issues. And help identify some future funding sources, almost said flooding sources, funding sources, including uh, Main Street grants. Clerk Treasurer Sandra Hash asked the council if there was any deliberation being done on some residents expressing interest in changing the Halloween trick-or-treat hours to Saturday night instead of Sunday. Council member William Ellis said that the date on the calendar is October 31st, and that is what kids know and expect.
4: The date on the calendar is the 31st, which is when Halloween traditionally is. So I don't see where we have any determination of when Halloween is. So, I mean, that, that's, I don't, I don't know when this started. It didn't happen when I was a kid. You went trick-or-treating whenever Halloween was. Nobody told us when to go. We, we were able to read a calendar at an early
6: age.
3: Council member Scott Oldham responded, saying that it is not the government's place to decide when trick-or-treating should occur.
7: My personal feeling is the government has no business telling you when you can go visit your neighbors. So go see your neighbors whenever you want. If they choose to give you candy, hey, good on you. If they don't, well, then leave.
3: The next Ellotsville Town Council meeting will be held on November 8th.
2: In today's feature report, we hear a selection from a recent interchange with guest Devarian Baldwin, professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities are Plundering Our Cities, a book which exposes the myth of the university as a public good, by revealing how much of its operations actually serve private and corporate wealth accumulation to the detriment of their host communities. In this segment, Devarian Baldwin turns to IUPUI in Indianapolis and asks Bloomington residents and IU students, are you aware of the way the university does its business across the state? In Indianapolis, this means destroying black community history. We turn to Doug Storm, producer and host of Interchange.
1: I did yeah. want to ask you about the 1980 By Dole Act, oh, because yeah. uh, obviously because of Indiana Senator Birch Bayh being one part of that uh, named in that act. But mm-hmm. uh, it's such like it's such a touchpoint for the the neoliberal university, um, right. you know, and all the things you've been talking about, you know, how the the university begins to profit off the research that students do and entities outside the university come into the university to profit off of that research as well. And I was just looking at the Indiana University webpage and it notes uh, in particular the IU uh, Research and Technology Corporation, a not-for-profit agency that assists <laughs> IU faculty and researchers in realizing the commercial potential of their discoveries. Since 1997, university clients have been responsible for more than 1,800 inventions, nearly 500 patents, and 38 startup companies. In fiscal year 2016, 16, IURTC was issued 53 US patents and 112 global patents. And that's, you know, that's a function of that Bidole opening, right?
0: That's right. Yeah. So the Bidole Act is very interesting because before that, and first of all, we should state that almost all of the research that goes on campuses is primarily funded by the federal government through grants. Before 1980, it was presumed, which made sense that because this research is being funded or underwritten by federal public money. Therefore, the discoveries and findings of that research had to be held in the public domain. It cannot be privatized. It cannot be turned into um, for-profit measures. It had to be made open and available to the public. Mm -hmm. A group of universities got together in the 1970s and lobbied to change that relationship. And that ultimately became the buy Act. As you mentioned, Senator buy from Indiana um, was, was the, a name legislator on that act um, that said now you can, universities can take the free and public research that they produce and privatize it, can convert it into intellectual property and then sell it onto the re, onto the market, the private market to the highest bidder and receive money back in the form of royalties. So again, just to be clear, this is public money that is being converted into private wealth for universities and private companies. That was the foundation for what I call the knowledge economy. Universities have always had tax exemption on their on their land, property tax exemption on their land. But now after the Baydol Act, this isn't just land for dormitories, this is land for profit-generating laboratories that is powerful for this knowledge economy that I'm talking about. And so another comp- component of this is in these laboratories, in these workshops, individual these entities are engaging in exploitative labor. Who's doing most of the work? There might be a faculty um, a principal researcher that's employing a number of graduate student researchers and workers, that the graduate students would normally go out with a bachelor's degree, would go out and work, say, for Bombardier, Google, um, you know, what have you. Um, and they will receive, say, $60,000 to start off with a bachelor's degree in engineering, computer science, uh, you know, bio, biotechnology, uh, biochemistry, what have you. They come to IU or whatever school and they get a stipend for maybe $30,000. If that student worked in the in the private sector, over time, they do a couple of discoveries and research, they would get $100,000, $120,000 as research, you know, for promotion, But that student, three or four or five years later, they're still getting that $20,000 or $30,000 stipend because they are considered to be an apprentice. So the millions of dollars that might be produced by this research, the workers, the primary workers on this don't receive any money for it. And then if a patent is created, the school could get between 50 and 60% of that patent just because the research is done on their campus. This arrangement is great for the school. It's great for the private entity because they can write off all of the, all the work that they, all the money, they, the donations they make to the school as, as a write off in the name of educational purposes. So they get cheap research and development. So That's it really private. has just
1: become an, an arm of the financial um, corporate structure. Large, uh, obviously, public universities like Indiana University can't do that for everyone. I mm-hmm. um, mean, mm-hmm. there, there are particular uh, departments that do that. Uh, and there are other departments, humanities in particular, that that right, don't that do don't. that. Right. <laughs> so so
0: that's uh, right. And, they're, and they're actually being phased out, you right, know, in some right, ways right, because they right. because they don't do that.
1: Well, one um, one, one good way to to, to look at it uh, here at least and probably everywhere too, is just to look at the salaries of faculty to sort of give you a sense of the, the valuation
0: of certain departments. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know that's right. And so what we're finding is some people are calling it the corporatization of the university. Oh, sure. But I'm glad you bring up IU because I think that colleges, and especially um, big land-grant public universities um, that are existing in college towns, they perceive that they're not touched by these conversations that I'm having. Um, but it's funny because many of these public schools that are in college towns like Bloomington, or in my book, Tempe, Arizona, or in Gainesville, or where I, I grew up in Wisconsin, so Madison, Wisconsin, they seem to be, be perceived as being untouched. But where we find direct relationships is number one, the tax phenomena in college towns is real. The labor issues in terms of who works on campus is real. The impact and the influence that most of the the individuals that go into governance usually are alumni of these schools and many times work in the interest of the schools when they make decisions. Mm -hmm. But another area that's rarely untapped is that college town universities are flagships, which means they're connected to and control um, other campuses in urban areas. And so in my book, I talk about um, Arizona State building a downtown campus in Phoenix, Arizona. But we can see a similar phenomenon going on with the IUPUI campus in Indianapolis, which is controlled by Indiana University in Bloomington. And so right now there's a major controversy going on because IUPUI is situated right in the middle of the historically black Indiana Avenue district. Which got demolished in the 1960s and 70s, just destroyed because of urban renewal, making way for highways and roads and just demolishing areas. When that happened, IUPUI took advantage of the demolition and built parking lots across the street from what had been a vibrant Black commercial entertainment district. So today, right now, there is a developer by the name of Buckingham, which is trying to build a 70, trying to demolish what's left of the Black historic district. Um, if we know, if we know that any black history, Madam C.J. Walker was one of the first black millionaires, black one millionaire who was in the beauty industry um, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so that her theater, because she's from Indianapolis, her theater still sits there. They want to demolish the, the last remnants of that Indiana district and build a 70 million dollar apartment complex that will serve the needs of students in the IUPUI campus. Now, if we take if we take a, a broad view, what's the primary function of the IUPUI campus? It's an urban research and academic health sciences campus, and to the northwest of that campus is what the city is targeted as Tech Point, a burgeoning technology development um, community, a hub. Mm-hmm. So, if we take the broad view, this perfectly fits within my framework and understanding of the knowledge economy. These partnerships between campuses and the health sciences and tech industries that can generate research and development on the part of student workers and researchers that can be brought to market and bring money to the university and to these private entities at the cost of holding back, withholding taxes from the neighborhoods, and in this case, demolishing historic neighborhoods to engage in that kind of profit-making enterprise. And so there are parking lots that IUPUI holds right across the street from this district. Those parking lots could be ceded to the historic Black neighborhood so that either The uh, housing could be built on the parking lots. The parking lots could be used to bolster and revitalize that neighborhood in the interest of the residents. But again, what is the flagship campus Bloomington saying about the dealings of its urban campus in Indianapolis? This conversation must be placed on the radar because what's happening is basically students that are at Indiana, Indiana University in Bloomington, this kind of work is being done in their name. And this is the kind of wealth generation and economic development at the cost of residents that's happening within these, what I'm calling, universities.
1: And we don't know about these things in our backyard frequently. Obviously, students in particular at a place like Indiana University would likely have no idea about Indianapolis history, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or anything's happening at IUPUI in general, unless they have some some particular departmental reason to, to take a class uh, there as
0: well. You make a great point. Students that are at Bloomington don't know what's happening in that, right. but the work that I'm doing here, if people are able to just simply glean the overall framework, it gives them a different outlook, right. a different sense of understanding their place within a burgeoning and dominating economy. Who are we, and what's our relationship to our environments? Um, how can the university, and by extension, individual students, become better neighbors, become better situated? Better? That they're not just these floating entities that come into a space for four years, or maybe five or six years, and leave. This is not simply um, a, a training ground for the real world. These campuses, your presence, you're a part of this real world, multi million dollar economy, and you should know about that. What? If if we go to school for anything, and and not just to get a job, it's to understand our our sense of our citizenship, our place, our situatedness. And, And we should be lifelong learners. And we should be getting, this is the kind of education I feel that students should be getting. What's your relationship to the environments in which you sit? How can you make them better? How can you improve them? How can you better connect to your surroundings? How can you be a better citizen in your community and in your world? This is a grounded, material example, a starting point for students to begin that hopefully lifelong process.
3: Up next, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB, hosted and produced by Richard Fish. Return to Richard Fish for more.
5: Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio, with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket.
7: Boy, they're at it again. The holidays are coming up, and the Russian remailing scammers are ramping up their efforts. Here's how the scam works. You're looking for a job or extra part-time work online. Maybe you're using Monster or CareerBuilder or one of the perfectly legitimate employment websites, and you spot a gig that looks ideal, work from your home doing some simple things that don't require a lot of technical expertise or any real training, and you get paid right away through some perfectly legitimate means like PayPal. You go to the company website, and it looks good an American company with a United States address and phone numbers. The names of the contacts are ordinary-sounding names, like George Carter or Michael Hawkins. Maybe you even check further, using Whois or Domain Tools or some other website to see who owns the domain, and it comes back to another American address. If it's an overseas address, it's a friendly-sounding one, like French or British." you inquire they respond and they offer you a contract which looks all right you sign up and things start arriving at your home These things are new, and they're not huge. No refrigerators, 75-inch TVs, or sailboats. Just things like purses and coffee makers. You wrap each item as a gift, and then wrap it up in brown paper ready for shipping. And you take pictures as you do this, showing the item, the gift wrapping, and the outer wrapping. You log on to the website and upload your pictures, and they send you back a mailing label to print out and stick on. The package, as it turns out, is going to somewhere in the Russian Republic or in the Ukraine. You mail it off, turn in the receipt, and bingo, you get paid for your work. Maybe you get 40 bucks a package, and you only spent a few bucks for wrapping paper, and it took less than an hour. It's all good, right? Wrong. You may do several packages and find you're not getting paid. At the same time, things stop coming. They will stop coming all of a sudden at some point. The items were all purchased with stolen credit cards or fake credit accounts built up with hacked information, people's stolen identities. Especially during the holidays, retailers often don't catch the fraud until after things have been shipped. When the seller finds out they've been ripped off, all they've got is your name and address. These Russian remailers do their dirty work under clean-sounding names like Erico Designs, Design America, or Shipprocess.com. When one gets busted, they pop up again with a new name and website. The Postal Service and other scam-busters are just playing whack-a-mole. This swindle has been going on for years, and all too many good people have been conned into helping a foreign den of thieves. Don't be one of them.
2: You've been listening to WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathan and Apple and I, in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Doug Storm.
3: Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kay Young. For WFHB, I'm Wilder Mouton.
2: And I'm Noelle Husky schneider Thanks for supporting Indiana's only, volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org.
3: You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org.
2: Stay tuned for Hearabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio, coming up next on WFHB.